Welcome to Me and the Geek. As a matter of fact, welcome to the final episode of Me and the Geek. I bet you didn't know that uh, when you clicked through, or maybe you did already. Maybe you've seen the new logo. Maybe you've seen uh, some of the discussion online. Maybe you even read uh, the blog post that I, I put up yesterday. We have moved in more ways than one. The first thing that you need to know as you're listening to this show is we're going to keep putting out great episodes. I promise. There'll be uh, more stuff for you to listen to next week. And as a matter of fact, I think the show is going to be even better than before. Uh, I've got a very personal episode to give you next week, and then we've got some great interviews already lined up as we're going to be talking to Jeff Brown very soon. We're going to be talking to Bethany Rayburn, a, a wonderful musician. We're going to be talking to Josh Tolison with the 318 Now podcast. He's a, a really cool local podcaster here. Tune into Haycar's new podcast series, The Road to a Simple Life. And join me, Vernon Kay, as I chat to McFly's Harry Judd, Ian Haste of Haste Kitchen, and Money Magpie's Jasmine Bertles about how they keep things simple across their family, food, and financial lives. The Road to a Simple Life is brought to you by Haycar, the new website for used cars that promise to make finding your perfect used car simpler than ever. Find us on all major podcast channels or head to haycar.co.uk forward slash simple for all of the episodes. You're in my area doing an interesting um interesting take on podcasting that I want to talk about in more detail. But right now, we've got another live episode, the last live episode from our summer series that we finished up at Louisiana Tech University here in Ruston, Louisiana. And what a great time it was this summer talking with some of the artists and the faculty members at Louisiana Tech. And I'm hopeful to do a very similar uh, series next year. As a matter of fact, I'm looking to maybe even bring in some outside artists as the interview guests. So more information as we get to that. But right now, let me give you some behind the scenes details. You can click through to our show notes if you'd like uh, and check out a blog post if you haven't already read it that details exactly what happened behind the scenes uh, on our other podcast or my other podcast. Uh, Always Listening is the new name of that show. It used to be called Pod on Pod. I co-host that with Josh Shirley and he and I have made uh, a business decision. We've moved networks from the Procast Network, Jeremy McKnight and Rob Goldman, uh, great guys that helped us start these shows from the very ground up and we are moving over to Blog Talk Radio. As a matter of fact, we're forming our own own network under the Blog Talk banner uh, called the Two Guys and a Rogue Network. This is the final regular episode of Me and the Geek. We're going to put out this live uh, episode that I recorded last week, and then next week you'll get the very first episode of a whole new show right here in its place. We're going with the name What Makes Me Weird. It's sort of already what we've been talking about. We've been talking about people that go beyond the mainstream with their passion for a single topic or a job or a hobby or an art form, and that's what we're going to continue talking to and talking about right here on What Makes Me Weird with Joel Sharpton. But first, our final summer series episode as I interviewed a great guy, Lawrence Gibbs. What stories he had to tell, and we only got into the very, very beginnings of them, but some really cool stuff. We found out a lot about his background, his dad in particular, and the path that led him to where he is today. Fun stuff as always. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, join me afterwards, and we'll give you a little bit more homework and details about next week's big changes coming your way. My discussion with Lawrence Gibbs live from the Arthur W. Stone Memorial Theater on the campus of Louisiana Tech University. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Joel Sharpton with me and the geek. (laughs) 
for those of you who have not uh, joined us for one of these summer events before, uh, my name is Joel Sharpton. I am the host of a couple of podcasts. A podcast, my grandmother asked me one time what a podcast was, and I said, well, it's like stand-up comedy, except there's two of us, and we sit down, and there are very few jokes. <laughs> so it's sort of like that. Um, and it happens on the internet mostly. Uh, you can get it on your phone, uh, or you can get it on your desktop computer, or on your iPad, or, or any of those ways. And the reason that I like to do it is because it allows for a more intimate conversation, uh, a more thorough conversation. You can get to points because there's not a commercial break to get to, and there's not a, uh, a time slot to fill, et cetera, et cetera. So we will try to be brief, we will try to be to the point, we will try to be entertaining and interesting, but we're not going to rein ourselves in. Uh, I say all that to say this. Your wife asked earlier, are you the geek or am I? Yes. Um, so let's start here. What were you geeky about as a kid? What was little Lawrence Gibbs geeky oh, about? Um, and you hit it right there because I was called little Lawrence all my life. Until I got grown, I guess. Uh, no, uh, well, very, very quickly, uh, I became infatuated with, with records when I was a kid because my father was in the radio and he brought all the records from the radio station. And I got to play them because I was interested in seeing what was on there. Uh, that had stuff, that had songs. And, and uh, so that's, that kind of started something, uh, me listening to records, which I still do today. And I've got 4,500 of them in my house. Oh, I've got a vinyl collection uh, that nobody else would want. The sheer, the sheer tonnage on that has to be prohibitive. It takes up an entire room. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you said your father was in radio. Was he was he musically gifted himself, or was he just a musical aficionado? Actually, he was much more musically uh, aware than, than I thought uh, until recently. I found a, an old acetate radio transcription of, that, that he did over in Monroe at the old Paramount Theater, uh, a fellow named Don Britt Moser, who's been long gone, uh, was the organist there. And uh, they took one of those radio, radio recording devices, acetate recording devices, and he sang, uh, I Hear a Rhapsody. And, and I put this all together after talking to some of my, my family. Uh, he put this as a love song to my mother when they were dating. And he... Uh, I, somebody sent me a cassette of this thing, and it had long been lost. But, but this, uh, this acetate had my father singing and to a very, very good uh, accompaniment. And he had a voice like Frank Sinatra. What was your first instrument? Uh, piano. And uh, just actually, I think I, I started out singing when I was a little kid. Uh, and then when I got into high school, I, uh, in, in helping my father, uh, being a DJ and a radio personality that he was, he also was a sports announcer and announced all of Marshall High School ball games. And so, having a little trouble with his back, I had to help him lug all the equipment up to the top of the state and set it up every week. Every Friday, that was my game. Uh, my freshman year of high school. I finally realized My that son is taking notes, I think, for this fall, <laughs> by the way. So, uh, but as, uh, as I did that, I, I became aware of the high school band that was at, at the school at that time. 
the one that ended up being one of the finest in the country, Jack White was the director of that band, who uh, later was my mentor and still is my mentor. Uh, and, uh, but that got me involved in, in music much, much stronger than I ever thought possible. Um, and it's, it's an odd little story about how I happened to be a clarinetist. But my father had gotten with that director, Jack White, and I was basically attacked. <laughs> I guess you can say. Uh, and I won't go into all the details, but uh, all of a sudden, Mr. White comes up to me and says, I hear you're going to be the next Benny Goodman. And I went, really? <laughs> I said, uh, but I don't play an instrument yet. He says, well, you can. I said, well, I'm, I'm a ninth grade high school student. I've waited too late. He says, no, you haven't. So he tells come by my office the next Monday. He says, I've got a clarinet for you, and we will start lessons. So he gave me two weeks of lessons during his lunch hour. He put me in what's called the beat, the beginner band. And then, thank goodness, I had taken a little bit of piano lessons when I was in junior high school being the choir, so I could understand what that music was. And that helped me get started. Was it always, from then on, a fascination with the winds? Has that always been your focus? Yeah, very much so. Um, and what was it? Trying to think of a way to phrase this question that doesn't sound dismissive at all, Lord. So, give me some leeway. Yeah, you're fine. What was it that was appealing about marching band? Oh, <laughs> right. I, I couldn't think well, of any way to say that. It didn't sound like. Now, yeah. I, I said it as a guy. I dated a girl that was in the band. I understand some things that are appealing about some members of the band. <laughs> band today is bit different than it was when we were in school. Yeah, My wife and I were in school together in this band. Uh, and we were quite robotic. We were little marching military people. And the discipline was unbelievable. The control. You played really difficult marches by Sousa that you had to memorize. And you played a different show every week. And you had five days to prepare it. And that that regiment, I, I just, I don't. All I tell you is, is I look forward to every day going to that band room. We were lucky. We had two classes a day that we had band in. The second and sixth period of the day. And that band was the, really the center of, of my life for years, for all the rest of my high school days. We ended up taking that band, or Jack White did, to Midwest Band Clinic in 1969, one of five high school bands in the country picked by a select committee to go and perform in Chicago at one of the biggest hotels in the and the Sherman House area. And uh, so that, at, at that point I knew, okay, this is something I've got to do for the rest of my life. This is a slight detour off of you specifically, but it sounded to me in there like your prescription for how to Revive, I, I, and I didn't mean to be dismissive of marching bands. I love our marching band in particular here. Yeah. I love Louisiana Tech football, and, and the band of pride is a big part of that. Yeah. And I, I think Mark Wynn and I have talked about it before. Talked to Jim Rockin about it. You know, lots of folks. We've had this discussion. You know, how do you get the school more behind it? How do you get the student body more excited about it? How do you fill out all of those uniforms? Sounds to me like the, the prescription. If, if Dr. Gibbs is applying the prescription, it's it's 
to ask more of them, to invest more in them, yes, but to ask more of them. You talked about, hey, it's a different performance every week. Yes. Difficult music, uh, challenging your students, challenging your artists. And that's definitely what we do here. We've got, uh, we'll have 170 something kids come in this year. Uh, and uh, this band at this university does more than any band that I've ever seen at any university do. Yeah, we're all in a smaller uh, scenario, let's say. But the activity of this band is, is uh, as strong as anywhere you can go. And uh, I've got to hand that over to Jim, because Jim can pump these kids up, and he knows he knows the whole show. He really knows how to do it. We're going to get back to him in a minute, but let's, let's, let's go back and find how you got yourself here. So Dad's a, a radio DJ. You begin the clarinet in high school. You're too late for music. But not too late, in fact. But actually, I, yes, I, I found that uh, on both sides of my family, and, and this is something I found out much later, uh, for years I did not think my father was, was uh, very talented, but I also found out that he was a very fine singer, and he played, back in the day, in the, in the late 1940s, there was a thing about if you played the ukulele, the four-string ukulele, and he, I remember seeing his tenor uke up in the, in the, in the closet of the house, he would pick that up and do very much like what Kane uh, and, and Dr. Petsett just did. He would sing love songs to my mother, and he was really good. I mean, these love songs were five foot two, eyes of blue, blah, 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 1920s songs. Okay. But, he, but he obviously he had, job he had rhythms, he had pitch, and he had, uh, he had some technical facility. He always said he was so left. He was left-handed. His his moniker on the radio was LGBO left-hander. He was very famous back in the 1930s and 40s. And KMLB over Monroe. Uh, he he said he was so left-handed he could only play boogie woogie on the piano with the left hand. That's all he could do. <laughs> and so uh, he was. He was extremely left-handed. I'm left-handed. My wife's left-handed. Her, her father was left-handed. Is it is it today left-handers day or was that yesterday? Yes. Yesterday. Yes. 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 Well, yes. We're yes. only a day late. To we're only a day late. <laughs> anyway, we'll one. but uh, anyway, uh, I think that uh, and I've lost my train of thought. Where, where, where were we? Uh, uh, you, you were talking about your father's uh, surprising musicality. Yes, and uh, also on the mother on my mother's side of the family, uh, that was the Hibbert side of the family. She was one of the few people that could listen to something on the radio. And go over to the piano. She had four four piano lessons her whole life. She could go to that piano and pick out, and by the time we came home from school, she was playing the song she liked. Uh -huh. And that that's natural. That's a gift there. Well, and some of that's passed on, as you say. And you so, up, so all I, I can say is I might have gotten a combination of some of that stuff. And uh, but I also had um, I found that I thoroughly enjoyed that learning an instrument from. Uh, where you're thinking you're in a, a band program that is extremely well rehearsed and well taught, and uh, you have to play catch up. And so I, my dad said, well, of course, if you want some private lessons, we've got to figure out how to get you some private lessons, which was the secret behind all early learning. And so just happened to come from uh, Eastman School of Music at Northeast Louisiana University, which is what it was called during that time comes Eugene Zorro, who is still alive, still teaching, and I think he finally retired, but he's like 90 by now, playing, still playing to this day. One of the finest clarinet teachers on earth at the time on the planet. And I just happened to be able to take my wife took lessons from him also. 
And so it's just one of those things for two years, you get lessons with, with somebody fresh out of these. And so that got me to the top of the, the high school bank. I was second chair. I never took bank first. Second chair of high school. It makes you try harder, though. Uh, so anyway, I, I knew I was going to do music. I had, uh, I had been given a, a personal tour of LSU. Uh, I was supposed to come to Louisiana Tech. But when Jack White decided to, to, to leave Washington High School and go up to Northeast, he came to me and said, I want you in my band. I will give you whatever you need. And he gave me a full ride. And that was the only way I was going to go to college, I'll tell you that. Because we didn't have any money. And it was, there was not a lot of, uh, of money in our family. So uh, I, I jumped on that. Didn't have to go out of town. I could walk to school because the school was about three blocks from my house. And so it was just a, a wonderful thing. Uh, and so then I, so I get to continue that mentoring with Mr. White, uh, who made, made you, you, you wanted to do anything you could do to make him happy. Not, it, it's just because you thought that much of him and his love for for the art of band and the art of teaching. It, it made me realize that what I got from these teachers, I wanted to learn how to do. And so that's how I got into music education. Uh, and it, it's that pay, pay, pay it forward thing. Uh, and so that's what I like to do. It's what makes me want to, to get up and pick the horn up and play and, uh, and teach the students. And, uh, but now, you, you, you mentioned how did I get to professionalism, I guess. Well, well that's, I was, I was, I was going to jump ahead a little bit. I want to know, I want to know how you got to Vegas. Oh, okay. <laughs> Quite a jump. Uh, when I graduated from Northeast in 1975, I went out to try to find some band directing jobs. And at that time, Every band director at their school was staying put. It was just one of those economic times that uh, there was no movement. And so I find myself going to Safeway, trying to find a job, uh, uh, throwing grocery bags and stuff up. Couldn't even get a, a blink, you know. Uh, a local uh, musician, uh, actually a, he was a very famous musical star uh, from Monroe, Billy Ledbetter was uh, an artist that uh, is now considered a Louisiana legend. He's passed on. Uh, but he was a uh, very fine guitarist. And he had had a, uh, an early 1964-ish type hit right before the Beatles hit. He said the Beatles killed him. <laughs> he refused to play Beatles songs. Uh, it was called Stealing Hubcats. And it was his only one-hit wonder. Well, he had become very... Uh, involved in all of the, the, the Lions Clubs, the, all of the different uh, groups doing um, all of their dances, all of their entertainment, all the society gigs. And he went to Nashville, and, and uh, actually went to Memphis first, and made a, a couple of recordings. They called me up there, and, and I had to go uh, uh, play on these early, early recordings. But he did mostly country music, but he could play anything. It was a variety show band. Um, long story short, we go all over the place uh, and open up for the Oak Ridge Boys and, and stuff like that. And we were as much a singing group. We sang four-part harmony like Alabama. Uh, and so I was actually able to use some of my vocal abilities at that time. But uh, we, we covered everything from 
1920s uh, jazz Dixieland to as late as we could get, which was, I think, uh, Kenny Rogers. Rogers was about the last thing we did. Uh, we were found uh, in, in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. We were at one of those really fine hotels and playing a, a gig. And this gentleman came up and talked to Billy and says, I'm part owner of the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, I want you to, to be part of that in two months. Can you do it? And we just laughed. We thought that was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. sure you are. Sure you are. <laughs> well, in, in, in a week, we were booked uh, with the so-called Irish show band, who was the Elvis of Ireland at that time. So it was the, uh, you can imagine the schmaltz of it all. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, we, we show up, and, and it was really awesome. I had never been to anything like that, uh, the Aladdin Hotel at that time. Uh, now the Aladdin Hotel now is some <coughs> ridiculous monster, but this thing is still more than this other boy I've ever seen. I've never seen so many chandeliers in my life. <laughs> Every five feet was a chandelier. That was where Elvis and Priscilla yeah, were, were married at that hotel. Was that the Aladdin? So anyway, we, we get into the lounge and we're in there for three weeks. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, uh, comes uh, a gentleman and this very large, white, bearded guy ended up being Sam Boyd, who was Sam's town at that time. He was one of the three big bosses, and I'm sorry about this, boss stuff is real yeah. in, in Vegas. And so uh, we're playing, I, I think we were doing uh, Ink Spots medley at the time, and all of a sudden, this guy stops in his tracks, and we're doing, uh, if I didn't care, and all that stuff. Well, this guy just thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. And so he, he gets his entertainment director, who was uh, Gary, ooh, Gary LeMaster, Gary LeMaster, thanks. <laughs> uh, Gary LeMaster, he's, he's passed, uh, but he, he was a member of the, um, oh my gosh, uh, one of those Western groups like Roy Rogers and stuff. Okay. Uh, Sons of the Pioneers, there you go. Oh, so he, he's, all right. He played the Sons of the Pioneers. Um, and af after we did the, the Oak Ridge, the uh, thing, we went into the Oak Ridge Bowl song. We jumped all over the place because whatever the audience wanted to hear, we would play. And uh, so as it turns out, this guy meets us after the show and said, uh, we're getting ready to open up a new casino. Not on the Strip, it's on the Henderson Highway, okay? We said, well, sure. And, uh, but we'd like y'all to be our first band. With your first, the opening act. And so, you don't turn that down. Uh, and so we all moved to Vegas. <laughs> and uh, for two and a half years, solid, with hardly a night off, we stayed at that showroom. Won two local awards for local lounge act. I guess the, the townspeople. Um, and, and so we were there uh, in, in almost six years. I'm imagining playing that often, playing that regularly and that much variety, the music can't help but get to just a razor's edge of as good a musician as you could be, that's probably where you were, right? Yes, uh, and, and I was in my 20s and, and had no idea really what we were doing. Uh, we got so meshed. We, we never even needed to look at each other. 
we were all on, on the stage, and we never knew what Billy was going to do from one moment to the other. And we would go a solid week and never have to repeat a song. He had a photographic memory for words and melodies, uh, and a very good guitar technique, rhythm guitar, uh, very good singing voice. He'd hear it one time, and we were running just to keep up with him. But he got into the Statler Brothers, and that was a vocal group, and that nearly killed me. Because I, I, you had to memorize a jigging words, and that's my big deal. I cannot memorize words. And then you do a lot of parts. Oh, well, yeah, parts. So we ended up making one album in Las Vegas in 1980, and uh, I do have a few copies of it. And uh, it's for it sale was, in the lobby. No, no. <laughs> Um, no, they're, they're strictly vinyl, and they, that was before CDs. <laughs> before CDs. But uh, anyway, it, that's how we got there, and uh, we stayed there. Um, I ended up coming back, and uh, I felt like I, I wasn't where I wanted. The performing was fun, and, and I tried it in many different venues. But but I think in my heart, I really wanted to teach other students to do what I do, um, and and so. Uh, my wife asked me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to teach. I said, I've got to have a master's or a doctorate and to do it. And so we, we stayed right here in Ruston. And I, I came to Ray Young. Mr. Ray Young was the director of bands there. And he gave me a graduate assistantship. And in two years, I, I, I was able to study with a fabulous teacher that was also from Eastman and uh, was here for a, a, a couple of years, Alan Keaton, a tremendous teacher. Much younger than I, but I, we got along famously. And uh, and at the end, he decided to go down to South Louisiana, and he told me, "Put in your job, put, put, put into this job." And so I did. And miracle of miracles, I was hired, and I've been here since 1989, just having a blast. You know. <laughs> um, well, I was going to ask you. You know, I mean, the the song from World War Two. How do you keep them down on the farm after they've seen Game Perry? Yeah. You know, after you after you've done Vegas, how do you decide that Ruston's enough? Well, okay, <laughs> you can you can get very close to burnout, and I, I think I did. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but I realized that all those all the years I was there, I really did not get to experience very much of Ruston. I think I went to two or three shows. I got to see Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, and K-Star, who nobody knows who it is. But uh, those kind of things happen. Um, and you, you just get involved. And Las Vegas at that time only had 250,000 people. It's not like it's 250 million now. Yeah. But uh, it is um, really, uh, it's very much, at that time, it's like many, many small towns. I happen to live in... Um, a small neighborhood, which was one of the last neighborhoods that actually had grass and trees, <laughs> and uh, it was wonderful. Uh, it was very, very close to the Cashman uh, Field where they have the Las Vegas Suns play uh, third degree ball, whatever they call that stuff. Yes, and so uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. But uh, I have never been back. I do. I would like to go back and just say, "Gosh, I actually lived here for a while." I, I'm sure I wouldn't recognize a thing. Uh, in fact, Samstown, this, the original Samstown that I worked at, was scraped off, and they built some, you know, monster uh, 
piece there. You know, so uh, maybe I will get to that. Uh, well, let's talk about your time at Louisiana Tech. Let's talk. Let's get back to to Jim Brockton. We mentioned him earlier uh, and your relationship with him. Yeah. <clears throat> Marching band was where it started for you. Uh, yeah, I, I was actually here helping with the, the basketball pep band uh, and, and uh, teaching lessons and doing jazz improvisation lessons with the kids and stuff for the jazz band. And then uh, when Mr. Keating left, I was able to take over all of those duties, which teach, would be teach all the music majors uh, woodwind, single read lessons, saxophone and clarinet. And I was doing music preach and uh, the methods classes, things like that. And I've done that solidly ever since. Um, what was it like first when you started out with him and then and then the relationship that you guys have you've worked together a long time? Now. Yes. We are, uh, we are very, very, very still going to get to work with him a little longer now since he decided to retire. I'm, I'm so glad that he's been so blessed with, with his, uh, his health. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, as soon as Jim got here, I, I knew exactly what he was trying to do. He had created, I, I mean, really, when you think about, especially the basketball pet band, that whole genre did not exist to the degree that we know it now. And it is because of him. Uh, in fact, they had to start writing rules against <laughs> what he was doing because nobody said you couldn't. And so he had kids running down to the court, doing all this very entertaining stuff, and the crowd loved it. And, of course, now they have to sit there like little robots almost, but they yell and scream and stuff. But, but a lot of, of, of his magic has, has been quietened to a degree because it was too good. It was just too good. Disruptive to the opponents. And, exactly. And, and he was able to, uh, to study with... with Coaches up there, and they—he he knows the psychology of all of these games. He knows when you need to do this and when you do not need to do something. And that's that's something that is very rare. And uh, and he loves—he has a great great love for what he does. He enjoys this this aspect of, of, of entertainment. It's it's fun for him. He says if it's not fun, he's not going to do it. I don't like it. That's exactly what I what I see. Good to have. Yeah. Uh, is it still fun for you? Absolutely. Um, in some ways, I think you guys are sort of on the front lines of the, it's not a war, but the sports-arts dichotomy. Yeah. I brought it up with Paul, and he made fun of me after Paul Crook, when I interviewed him a while back, he says there are lots of people in the theater that are uh, sports lovers, they just stay quiet uh, <laughs> more than others. Uh, and I know Mark Wynn is a big sports lover, I'm not a sports fan, an NBA fan especially. But do you do you think that there is still a place? Do you think it is still very important, integral to the football experience, to the sports experience, to have the band there Gosh, in the yes. modern day? Right. Even even with all the loud music, the and try, etc. Yeah. Right. And and yes, that has to a degree taken away some of what we do. Uh, it's because louder is louder, you know. Right. I can't say that it's as good myself, but uh, I think it has its place. I think it's all very new, and and everybody is trying to find how to make it all work. I don't think 
I mean, you would be talking about the end of music education. Mm -hmm. If you take the band out of sports events, uh, maybe not the total end, but you would totally decimate some aspects of music education. And I just don't think we should go there. Uh, I think that, that this is a, a model of uh, entertainment that is historical, yes, but it's also, uh, especially in smaller towns, extremely important and worthy of doing well and, and people buying into it, you know. And so if anything Jim Rockley knows how to do, he can, if the people will just watch him, he will get them so involved in, in, in the, the sports aspect of that game, they will really get a lot better experience out of it instead of just sitting there. I mean, even just as you were talking about that, but it's something I know, I, I grew up in Bastrop, Louisiana, small town, rural south, especially, south uh, United States, big football town. Well, it's a very big football town, but also in those rural towns, especially now, other than maybe church attendance, what musical exposure, what real music exposure, I mean, yeah, you can see it on MTV or you can hear it on the radio or something, but what actual musical exposure, hey, this is an instrument and real people play it and you could play it too, right, if you wanted to. Are you going to get in these small towns other than well, the marching band? We have to be the ones that create it. We have to continue. Our our music will become a lost art. Uh, it's one of those things that um, we take it for granted. But I will guarantee you this: if we get to a point where you don't have those high school bands anymore, and then you're going to have a decimation of the art form uh, because. Uh, that is the learning experience happens at the upstart of fifth, sixth elementary school grades. Uh, they they have to use that idiom as a fun, entertaining way to learn how to be musicians, to learn how to be involved in sports as an entertainment aspect of sports. Um, and then you, you just push it forward. Uh, part of that when they get to the college, the college experience continues that. And then uh, of course, when you get to the pros, yes, let the pros have all that electronics. That's fine. They don't have any, any high school to be associated with. So this is something that, that uh, I really, it's taken me a, a couple of years to, to kind of figure what I did think about this. But I, I really think that we cannot abandon that part of, of music education just because it might be easier to throw up a few loudspeakers and turn the volume up. Because uh, sometimes what comes out of those loudspeakers is like the greatest. It might be loud, but it's not necessarily the greatest. Or most appropriate. <laughs> so with, with Paul Crook, we talked about the little sort of dinner theater that he and his wife have started around here, and they've had several events. Um, Dr. Robbins, he staged uh, a couple of 10-minute plays this summer. Mark Wynn and I started throwing this summer series uh, together to keep ourselves busy during the summer. You've got a personal project to keep yourself entertained and, yes. and to throw a little art uh, here right. in Ruston, live it up Ruston since you can't go to Vegas. Right. Uh, let's talk about the Rusttown Band. All right. Um, back uh, in around 1993 or 94, uh, the, uh, the orchestra, our orchestra that we had here disbanded. And uh, my wife and I were thinking, you know, gosh, this, we, don't have, we don't have a professional group around here, even a semi-professional group, 
And, and I think we need one. I think we've got to have some of this, you know. And so we got together with some of our other friends, uh, Ann and, and uh, Rochelle and her husband, and, and Charlie Rochelle. And uh, just as a committee, we decided to start calling and asking some, some of our musician friends if they would be interested in putting together a town band. Uh, like the 1890s, the, right. old, the, old, the old bands that played in the, you know, in the squares. Yeah, the festival, the band is here. Yes, yeah. and, and so we started calling, we, we had a meeting, and we said, well, okay, uh, who are we going to use to conduct it? And, and I really wanted to play clarinet in the band. Uh, and so, because uh, I love to play band music. Uh, so we had Oscar Barnes, who had, had been retired for many years, and he had conducted the band over the Twin Cities uh, in row and such. And uh, he was really kind of looking for something so he wouldn't have to drive so much. And he was well up in the 70s by that time. Uh, and he was associate director of bands at LSU. He studied on some of the finest people on the planet. And he had, he had been a very, very successful director at Ruston High. He knew exactly what we needed. And so for uh, 10 or 15 years, I think, he, uh, uh, at least 10, he, he was the uh, director of the bank. Uh, and finally, he got to the position, he says, I don't think I want to do this any longer. He says, he handed the baton to me. I went, you want me to do this? He says, here, you can do this. And so I took over as conductor at that point. But now the band's up. We started like 35 pieces. We used to play out at the railroad park when it was just a little stub, a little, <laughs> little block of concrete out there is all it was. Uh, we had to bring extra seating and stuff, you know. Uh, we could barely get 35 people on there. We would play until the train came through and put us off the stage. It was out of park. So uh, we, we got associated with the Dixie before they even restored. We, we played uh, quite a few concerts before in its old state because the acoustics of that room are awesome, yeah. tremendous. And so, anyway, they've been so kind after they uh, restored. Um, I, I got together with some of my friends, Jeremy Davis and the, the Equinox Jazz Orchestra, were members of our jazz ensemble here in Louisiana Tech. And uh, we went to jazz festival with them. It was a great, great bunch of kids. That would take all night to tell about that. But, uh, Anyway, we, um, where was I going with that? Uh, what was I talking about? We're talking about Rusttown Band. Yeah, Rusttown Band, there we go. Old, Alzheimer's disease, you know, old timers. Old timers, yeah. uh, The, the Rusttown Band, well, we, we ended up getting more people than we thought possible wanting to be involved in this. And so we're up to 60 pieces. Oh, and, and we've had to put a stop. We really have had to put a stop because we can't fit any more people on the stage of the Dixie. And that's, that is some where, people in the audience, too. You know, right. It's only so big a town. That is where we, uh, we played. And uh, the last concert, we, we brought in over 400 people into the auditorium as part of the Dixie. And it's, we give basically free concerts, or we ask for donations for, for, to help them pay the electricity bill or air conditioning bill or whatever. But uh, that's what we do. And uh, it's a labor of love. I enjoy getting to <coughs> to, to study the music. I, I get to conduct pieces I never thought I would get to conduct. And uh, it's been a blast. And the band is just just scary. It's good sometimes. We, we get together. We get together and we only have three or four rehearsals. 
once a week. We don't rehearse like three or four days in a row. We, we pass the music out, and, and these talented people who are semi-professional or amateur musicians that are pharmacists, uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, whoever, you know, we have the gamut. And uh, they, they play their horns uh, once or twice a week. They get their instruments out. We put them together on the stage. And, and I have a blast getting them to sound. Right. And they, they, they come together very quickly. We put hard stuff to That's um, <laughs> my wife. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time. And we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. I thought there might be a way that this would come up organically. I did research hoping for an artful way to bring it up in conversation. But I was instructed to ask, and so I'm just going to ask, will you tell us about your crystal mouthpiece, please? Oh, okay. Well, that was a picture that this came up. Um, it's long gone, unfortunately. But the thing is, um, Buddy DeFranco, there was a picture of Buddy DeFranco at one point. And I just remarked, well, I, I know what mouthpiece he was playing. He's playing a, a Robert O'Brien mouthpiece. And only clarinetists know what that is. He was one of the great craftsmen from the 1930s and I think up to 1950 or 60s. Um, he made these wonderful mouthpieces out of crystal. Uh, Hand-faced them with, with special tools and stuff. And they were all works of art. And I was lucky enough, uh, the first time I got a, a, a buffet clarinet when I was uh, in college, it was 1973 or 4, and um, paid a whole $250 for it. I won't go there. <laughs> uh, the fact is, with that instrument, uh, somebody had, had uh, it was actually a used instrument back then. Um, they had in there this glass mouthpiece, which I had never seen one before. Well, my teacher, Jim Gillespie, who ended up being professor of clarinet in North Texas for 35 years, uh, I was, uh, once again, blessed to have that kind of a teacher for uh, seven and a half years in the world while I was. Uh, he uh, he said, okay, now, this mouthpiece is special. And, and he, he showed me why it was special. And uh, he, had, he had helped the, the young girl who had bought that clarinet before I got it, uh, ordered that was his specific, what we call the facing, the way it's done. Um, and so I, it was the biggest leap in talent that I could tell you that I would see is the change of that one setup of, of instrument. Uh, I went from struggling to play to all of a sudden one piece can make the whole thing easier. And that's what it did. And I kept it all the way through right right before I left Vegas. It slipped out of my hands, hit the floor, and went into a forbidden uh. And the man had passed away the year No no repairing. Literally no replacement. No replacement. Irreplaceable. So anyway I punted, I have found a couple of really good uh, mouthpieces since then, but I don't know that anything had that magic like that. So that's the way life is. That's, that's a pretty good story to close on, though. I, I don't think we should push it. Thank you all for asking me to do this. It's, it's, it's a bunch of, uh, I, I guess it's just a bunch of information that I, I've experienced and I, I think it'll help somebody. You know, Mark, as Mark said earlier, if you have a talent, come and, and play with us on the stage. Come and bring your, your art on the stage. And that's what I think this is about too is I think a lot of people have a desire to write something or to play something or to sing something or whatever 
and they don't know how to get from A to B because right. nobody's ever told the story of how they got from A to B. So that that's the goal here to get a little bit of the A to the B. There you go. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's another thing. What a great conversation. Uh, what a great guy. Lawrence Gibbs, I appreciate him so much for joining me. And all of my guests that I had this summer, uh, Dr. Kenneth Robbins, Paul Crook, and Mark Gwen. I can't say thank you enough for the time and the uh, energy that you guys expended uh, in the interview process. I really appreciate that. Next summer, again, we're going to be doing this. Uh, but in between here and there, we've got a lot of great interviews for you right here on the web. Just stay tuned. Well, now, what do you need to do to make sure that you keep getting the show? If you got this week's episode... Well, then you'll get next week's as well, even though we're changing the title, even though we're changing the logo. It'll be What Makes Me Weird with Joel Sharpton. If you are having issues and you had to maybe go to the website or find this on our Facebook page or Twitter account, just uh, search for What Makes Me Weird. Subscribe to that in your iTunes uh, app or your podcast app, uh, even in Stitcher. We're there as well, and you'll be hooked up with the new shows. All right, I'll be back next week. Until then, I'm me. You can find me on Twitter at The Rogues Life. And this week's geek was Lawrence Gibbs. This has been the podcast. Two guys and a rogue. I'm one guy. I'm the other. And this is the network. Tune into Haycar's new podcast series, The Road to a Simple Life. And join me, Vernon Kay, as I chat to McFly's Harry Judd, Ian Haste of Haste Kitchen, and Money Magpie's Jasmine Bertles about how they keep things simple across their family, food, and financial lives. The Road to a Simple Life is brought to you by Haycar, the new website for used cars that promise to make finding your perfect used car simpler than ever. Find us on all major podcast channels or head to haycar.co.uk forward slash simple for all of the episodes. Joe loves doubles. Joe has a double-barreled surname. He goes double dutch on double dates, and on those dates he wears double denim. Joe sleeps with a double-down duvet by a double-glazed window, and has two fancy cars which he stores in his double garage. So Joe did a double-take when he saw our new double quarter-pounder with cheese. Double lovers get ready. The new McDonald's double quarter-pounder with cheese is here, but only until the 24th of September. So get there on the double. Served after 10.30am, except in selected restaurants, which will serve this from 11am. Participating restaurants only.